Elizabeth Warren has apologized to Native Americans for pretending to be one of them from 1984 to shortly after announcing her presidential run when she realized it looked bad to have lied about her minority status consistently for the last 35 years. Traveling to Sioux City under the impression it was a city full of Sioux, Warren spoke before the annual Native American conference on how to parlay American racial guilt into casino contracts. Dressed in a feathered headdress and buckskin jerkin, Warren told the gathering, quote, My heart is sore before the eyes of the Great Spirit. In my remorse, a single tear runs down my cheek, like in that old commercial where the Indian cries about pollution. The white man has stolen our lands, burned our tents, widowed our women, and seized our very identity to wangle a job at Harvard Law School. I would take vengeance on these intruders if they were not myself, which would make the whole experience very uncomfortable. Instead, I come before you today to smoke the pipe of peace and say how, as in how did I get away with this crap for so long, unquote. Dodging a hail of flaming arrows, Warren was asked about the fact she contributed recipes to the Pow Wow Chow cookbook in 1984, listed her race as American Indian on her Texas bar registration card in 1986, listed herself as a minority in the Book of American Law Schools until 1995, claimed to be a woman of color as late as 2012, and continued to claim her mother suffered anti-Indian bigotry well into 2018 when she also took a DNA test and used a tiny glitch in her almost absurdly white bloodline to claim she had a Native American ancestor in her pedigree. In response, Senator Warren said, oops. In an attempt to overcome an unenthusiastic audience response, Warren mounted a palomino, urged the Native Americans to join her in a campaign to regain their territories, and then rode out of, rode out of the hall alone. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hooray. You know, whenever I come in here and look around and see all the people working to make the Daily Wire what it is, I think, why didn't we use ZipRecruiter.com and make the Daily Wire something, you know, good? But ZipRecruiter, I don't really think that. But it is true that ZipRecruiter is the way to find people to work in your business. ZipRecruiter.com sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. And they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And if anybody like, oh, I don't know, Michael Knowles walks in, just a trap door opens and there's a shark tank underneath. It's like one of those Bond films. It's really cool. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire, all one word, D-A-I-L-Y-W-I-R-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Mailbag is coming up. 
<laughs> so enjoy your problems while you have them. They will all be solved by the end of this show. As you know, all my answers are guaranteed 100% correct and will change your life, sometimes for the better, sometimes <laughs> it's just a comedy of errors. What can I tell you? Uh, yesterday, uh, we had such a great time last night at the Terrence, uh, Terrace Theater in Long Beach, the live event, the Daily Wire Backstage Live. If you missed it, uh, your life will never be what it could be. It was so much fun. I, I, there must have been 3,000 people there. There really must have been. And it was like a rock concert. People were shouting and just uh, stomping and having a great old time. Uh, I don't know if we said anything worthwhile. Uh, I, I personally dozed off through. No, it was it was really exciting, really fun. And everybody was on point. Uh, we were talking about all kinds of things, the news of the day, uh, religion, and, uh, and the way the media works. And your old friend, Uncle Donald Trump, who some of you know may be president of the United States someday. Uh, and it was just, it was really fun. If you missed it, well, I'm sure we'll do it again. So next time, uh, make sure you get a ticket because it was really a blast. August is traditionally a slow news time. People in government who are usually in Washington, D.C., making life worse for the rest of us, go on vacation and leave us the hell alone. Small incidents get blown out of proportion as desperate commentators looking for something to commentate about make controversies out of nothing. The smart investors who usually make the market reflective of our economic reality are all at the beach, and stocks become volatile and illogical, giving financial writers with too much time on their hands reason to speculate about recessions that may or may not happen, and so on. But the fact that news is thin on the ground can also give us a little space to reflect on the bigger picture of what's happening in the world. And one of the things I've been thinking about all summer is the still little understood effects of the tech revolution on our psyche, on our culture, and on politics. And obviously, this is a big deal. The tech revolution is as big as the industrial revolution of the 18th century, which had massive and still not entirely understood effects on work, family life, gender roles, the balance between urban and rural areas, and so much more. One thing we can say for sure, technology has made the world smaller. That's almost a cliche at this point, but it's true. We know more about what's going on in far off places and we know it faster. And that creates a sense of unity that may or may not be in keeping with reality. If there's a shooting in Texas and then a shooting in Ohio and then a shooting in Illinois, we feel as if something critical is happening to our country. But our country in that sense is an imaginative creation of technology. If these things had happened 100 years ago in places so distant from one another, we might not even have connected them because they wouldn't have been happening in our neighborhood, which is the only world we truly know. Imagination is a massively powerful thing. Imagination is an organ of perception with which we understand our inner lives and the spiritual world. And just like our other organs of perception, our eyes, our ears, our noses, our imaginations can be fooled and our sense of reality can be distorted. You hear me rant a lot about the power of the news and entertainment media, and the reason I do that is because the new technology has given these media greater and greater power and more immediate power over our imaginations. In the last generation, movies changed the way America perceived the world and the way the world perceived America. But now movies and TV and podcasts and all this kind of media bombard us with ideas and perceptions and visions every minute of every day. And often we're not perceiving the world as it is, we're perceiving the world as the media creates it in our minds. And that changes the way we think and how we feel about what's going on. That's why every day is now a struggle to sort out the difference between what's happening and what our imaginations are being taught to think is happening. We have to see if we can figure out what's real. That is what we try to do here, and that is what we're going to try to do a little bit uh, today. You know, I wrote a column uh, over the over the 
uh, yesterday, I guess it came out because usually I write my columns on Friday when I'm not doing the show. But since I didn't do a show yesterday, I wrote my column yesterday. And it was uh, about thinking about Donald Trump uh, without sound. I was talking about the fact when you write a screenplay and you want something to happen silently, you've seen movies where there'll be a silent passage, uh, you write MOS. And the legend is that that was because there were a lot of German emigres, German and Austrian emigres, uh, who became directors in the early days of film, the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, and the way I heard it was Eric von Stroheim, when he wanted to shoot something without sound, he would say, shoot it without sound. So it was MOS, right? <laughs> without sound. And, you know, if you look at Trump without sound, it, it really is a, a different administration than the one we're taught to think it is. If you've got to take out all the noise. And a lot of that noise, obviously, is coming from the media. Uh, you know, some of the noise comes from Donald Trump himself. I mean, sometimes you got to ignore what Donald Trump is saying. But before we get to that, let's think about the stuff that the media actually says. I mean, I play it here every day, right? I play him saying, oh, he's a Nazi. He's a fascist. He's de got dementia now. This is the big one. He's For a while, he was crazy. Now it's he's got dementia. Uh, he was a Russian spy. He was a Russian asset for a while. Uh, all this crazy stuff that they keep saying. And this is not just coming, it's not just coming from like dopes, you know, like Donnie Deutsch, who's the one who's always like spouting this stuff. It's it's from, you know, it's from responsible uh, news sources, or once responsible news sources, the New York Times, a former newspaper. They were involved in the, uh, oh, Donald Trump is inspiring shooters, the shooters in El Paso. They were just uh, leaning on every way, waiting for every word that Donald Trump spoke, that that's why they became what they became. The fact that that El Paso shooter was also an eco-nut that has nothing to do with the eco-nuts telling us the world is coming to an end every minute. And the thing about this is, I always think about this. I, I think about this a lot, you know. I come here and you know that I'm trying to tell you what I see. I'm trying to tell you what I see and the problems with seeing things and, and how I, you know, when I'm not sure what reality is. And I'm actually trying to do that. If I came in here and tried to deceive you, I do not know how I would live with, live with myself. I don't know how you could come in and sit in front of a camera and sit with a microphone and try and deceive the people who are watching you. But I know these people are deceiving you. And I know at some level, at some level, it's conscious. I mean, the imagination is a powerful thing and maybe they live in their imagination. But the other day, Tom Hartman, now Tom Hartman, you may not know he was on, he may still be on RT, the Russian propaganda machine. And if you want, years ago, I was promoting a book and, you know, they send you out to these places and I didn't really know what RT was at the time, but they said it's, you know, connected with Russia. I said, fine, fine. I'm promoting a book. So I went in and I, Tom Hartman interviewed me and you can go on and find it. It's, it's pretty funny interview. I never liked it. I never liked these things on YouTube when they say, you know, Ben Shapiro or Andrew Clevin, Michael Knowles destroy somebody. But I, I thought I made him look pretty bad just because once I realized what the show, I, I was sitting in the green room watching this left-wing propaganda coming out of this place. And by the time I walked in, I that these guys are lunatics. And so I just said to him, look, Tom, I think you're a lunatic. And uh, it was it was pretty funny. There were, he was You could just see on his face that no one had talked to him like that. And it really took him uh, off guard. So I, I, as, a, as a thinker, as a guy who's making comments, I don't have a lot of respect for what's coming out of Tom Hartman's mouth. So he tweets yesterday. Uh, and I should add that he wrote a book. He, he writes a lot of books. He's fairly popular among the left. He wrote a book about the Second Amendment and how evil it is and how bad the Second Amendment is and how we shouldn't have guns, right? Because, you know, if there was one thing a Russian propagandist knows is that American people shouldn't have guns because he saw Red Dawn and he doesn't want that going on. So so T Tom Hartman yesterday, he uh, he puts out a tweet. He says, mark my words. Donald Trump is waiting patiently and encouraging his very own version of the Reichstag fire to flip U.S. democracy autocratic. Uh, 
Okay. So the Reichstag fire, I'm sure you know, Adolf Hitler, there was some crazy communist lit a fire in the Reichstag, the government building in Berlin, and Hitler and the Nazis played that up uh, to seize emergency powers, which of course they never let go of. They became dictators saying we must protect the, the polity from these, this evil uh, communist conspiracy. So he's saying that Donald Trump is just waiting to stage a Reichstag fire so he can seize emergency powers and become Adolf Hitler. And so I tweeted back at him. I said, well, Tom, then you must want us to have guns, right? Because you wouldn't want us not to be able to defend ourselves against Hitler. If Hitler is the president, the people need guns. I mean, this is one of the problems. Uh, Hitler came and confiscated the Jews' guns. You know, he knew where all the guns were because they had gun registration. So he came and got all the guns and the people couldn't defend themselves. I mean, when they had an uprising, finally had a, an uprising uh, in the Warsaw Ghetto, one of the hardest things to do was to acquire weapons. That was why it was so tough for the Jews to fight back when they came to kill him. So I tweeted back and I said, well, if he's Hitler, obviously you want us to have guns except obviously he doesn't because he wrote this book. So he's just a gas bag. He's just a gas bag. He's just a guy with gas emanating out of his mouth because it, he obviously doesn't believe this guy is Hitler because if he did, he would want us to have guns. He would want to have a gun. So they don't actually believe what they're saying, right? So we have all, but, but still, still they create this noise. They create this world in which we're constantly in danger. Beto O'Rourke, I, I, let, let's play. There's a cut of Beto O'Rourke just basically conflating Trump. O'Rourke is from El Paso. O'Rourke also have, is now polling at approximately minus 3%. He's going to have to give votes back. He's going at the end of this process, he's going to owe votes to the American people because he's actually fallen beneath zero. So he's doing anything he can to make himself viable again. And the more he tries, the more extreme he gets. And he's from El Paso. So here he is just blaming Donald Trump for the shootings in El Paso, which is amazing. Play it. He's a sick man. Um, focusing on the attention that others give him on whether or not he's loved versus helping a community that saw one of the worst mass shootings in American history to heal, going into the hospitals of uh, victims who were injured in large part because President Trump, by warning of invasions and predators and killers, and laughing when somebody at one of his rallies said, shoot them when referring to immigrants, was responsible for this, um, that just shows how, how depraved this president is. Beto O'Rourke doesn't believe that. I mean, if he does believe it, he believes it in an imaginative way. He believes it in this. He has this imagination that this is something viable to say, but he doesn't really believe that we're in danger because, again, he would want us all to have guns. He doesn't really believe that there's a crisis that Donald Trump is inspiring shooter after shooter. You know, the way you can tell about this, the difference uh, between the reality and the imaginative reality they're selling is the way they treated um, Islamic terrorists. So, for instance, the Boston bombing, remember the Rolling Stone magazine played the Boston bomber in this kind of glamour shot, uh, you know, making him look like some kind of, uh, you know, terrific guy. I remember CNN, when he was arrested, apologized for reporting that he was a Muslim. Uh, the idea, and they kept telling us, uh, Barack Obama, who said more people fall and hurt themselves in the bathtub that are killed uh, by Islamist terrorists, uh, you know, he, they would always say, oh, it's a lone wolf. Don't worry, it's a lone wolf. You know, and they would be lone wolves, but they would be inspired by Al-Qaeda, which they found on the Internet. So now the FBI says a lot of these white supremacist guys who go nuts and, they, and kill people, they say they're all lone wolves inspired by what they see on the Internet. So now suddenly we have a crisis, right? Suddenly they're saying, and by the way, I, I disagreed with them about the Islamic killers. 
I agree with them that it is a problem. It is a problem that these fatherless boys go on the internet and find as a father these hate groups, and they uh, and they're inspired to do this. I'm, I don't say I know more people fall in the tub and hurt themselves, but I don't say it's the same thing because these ideas are cancerous. I mean, you know, white supremacy is a cancerous ideology. So is Islamism. These are cancerous ideologies, and you have to denounce them. You don't have to get in a panic about them. And it is good to look at the numbers, and it is good to see that it's not happening everywhere. But yeah, you, you know, you can denounce these ideas. So the, my problem is the difference between the one, oh, it's no problem. It's just a lone wolf. You know, yeah, is he, is, I hate to mention, I hate to mention his religion because what a terrible thing that is to do. But suddenly, if, if it's turned around and it's your political opponent, suddenly it's a crisis. So that, that idea that we're in a crisis, and then, of course, if you say, you know, white supremacy, the idea of white supremacy in America not a crisis. It's not a crisis. I mean, it really isn't. It's it's a problem. It is a problem that these things ideas are online. Get you know, we should we should talk about them. We should fight back against them. We should try and keep marriages together so that we don't have so many fatherless boys. We should try and make sure that boys aren't called toxic all the time in the media. That would be a good thing to do. We should try to make sure that movies don't con- continually run down young men so young men feel that they are important parts of the society. They are. They are the future of the society. We can do all kinds of things. Uh, to fight white supremacy. But but the one thing we don't have to do is run around screaming in, in a panic about it. So, so much of this is going on right now in the summer when news itself is not occupying people. This is when you really see it, when it really bubbles to the surface. There's this thing going on that it really is amazing with Donald Trump and the Jews. I mean, Donald Trump has got to be the best friend, best presidential friend Israel ever had. So he made a comment uh, the other day about the de- the fact that the Democrats have a, a large and growing radical contingent that basically wants to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, right? They want to they want to boycott them. They want to divest our investments in Israel. They want to stop giving them aid. They want to make our aid contingent on them behaving uh, in such a way that will give the Palestinians. Uh, uh, power over them. They want. They have. They have nothing at all to say about the constant barrages of rockets that come over and kill uh, innocent Israelis. They have nothing to say about the terrorism. But anything Israel does uh, basically challenges their right to exist. And of course, I'm talking about Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, who've been in the news. But this is an actual uh, movement within the Democrat Party. Now, eventually, they're supporters of Israel in the Democrat Party. Eventually, there's going to be a struggle between them. But right now, if you are looking for anti-Semitic, evil, anti-Israel. Uh, uh, doings. Uh, it's all in the Democrat Party. So Trump made this comment. Uh, now, there, we've got two of them. Let's play the, the first one, number three. Where has the Democratic Party gone? Where have they gone where they're defending these two people over the state of Israel? And I think any Jewish people that vote for a Democrat, uh, I think it shows either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. All right. So now this word disloyalty lit up the media, right? Because one of the uh, tropes, the anti-Semitic tropes against Jews is that they have dual loyalty. They're more loyal to Israel than they are to America. It's garbage, but that's one of the ideas. So questioning their loyalty, that is why uh, when Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib did it, uh, it, it got people on the right were saying, hey, what are, you, what are you talking about here? But obviously what he was saying here, well, he explained it. Let's play the second clip where he explains what he was saying. We have a group, I call it AOC plus three. You could call the person Representative Talib. You could say Representative Omar. You could go any way you want to go. Uh, they are anti-Semites. They are against Israel. 
she had a plan to greatly embarrass Israel by going there with the the fact that she wanted to see her grandmother. I assume that's true. I hope that's true. But it was very bad, very bad. The things that she and others of that group and other Democrats have said. And they have become the face of the Democratic Party. And I will tell you this, in my opinion, the Democrats have gone very far away from Israel. I, I cannot understand how they can do that. They don't want to fund Israel. They want to take away foreign aid to Israel. They want to do a lot of bad things for Israel. In my opinion, you vote for a Democrat, you're being very disloyal to Jewish people, and you're being very disloyal to Israel. And only weak people would say anything other than that. All right, we're going to come back to that in a minute. Just remember what he said. First, let's talk about Rock Auto. Rock Auto, I like. I just like saying Rock Auto. I mean, it's so much cooler to say Rock Auto than to go and stand in front of some counter in some auto parts place and wait for this you know, girl who doesn't know anything more about cars than you do to look on her computer and tell you what you need when you can find what you need at rockauto.com. Rock, rockauto.com is a family business. It serves auto parts customers online. It has been doing that for 20 years. You can go to rockauto.com. Auto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. And they have everything, everything you could possibly want, brake parts, tail lamp, lamps, motor oil, even new carpet. And it's whether you've got an old classic that you love or the car that you drive around every day, you can get everything you need with a few easy clicks. The rockauto.com catalog is unique, easy to navigate, and you can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands, specifications, and prices you prefer. It's an amazing selection with reliably low prices. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Clavin in their How Did You Hear About Us box so that they know we sent you. And if you find yourself freezing suddenly when you want to do that, you think like, wait, wait, how do you... How do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A. Let me help you out. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. So that's President Trump. And he, the word, you know, he does this all the time. He says something that is utterly and completely true. Everything he said was utterly and completely true. But because he's a little reckless, he's not that articulate, uh, he's, and he speaks not all, he doesn't always consider every word that he says. It's one of the things we like about him. He uses a word that lights up the media, that the media can seize on. So he used the word disloyal, which of course is not what he's saying. What he's saying is it would be stupid of Jews to support people who would, the, the result of destroying Israel, and destroying Israel is what they want. It's not, it's not a hard thing to see. The, the result of destroying Israel would be millions and millions of Jews would lose their home and probably die. That would be the result. So when he uses the word disloyal, probably a bad word. I, I would say, yeah, that's not the word you wanted. You know, the word you wanted was foolish or, you know, uh, not helping Israel, whatever you want, however you wanted to say it. So listen, listen first. Let's talk first about the media reaction. Here's Joe Scarborough. He says it out loud. He talks about dual loyalty out, out loud. loud. He says everything out loud. His people go out and defend him and say, oh, he doesn't mean that. And then he says it into a microphone. And then they still figure out a way to try to defend the indefensible. It's indefensible, indefensible. He uses, I didn't use the exact right word to say what is exactly true, indefensible. And again, you know, you can criticize Trump for this, fine, but that's what happened. He just used the wrong word to say something completely true. Let's look at the Democrats selling it with everything they've got. And remember, when they sell it, it's a big sale because all the media echoes what they say. I mean, this is the problem. The media 
who has such a, who colonizes, uh, to use an old word by a friend of mine, Jeffrey O'Brien wrote a book about how movies colonize our imagination. The media colonizes people's imaginations. So they, by echoing the Democrats, they sell the Democrat view of the world. Here's Andy Levin, congressman from Michigan. I mean, here's a person who talked about fine people on both sides when neo-Nazis were on the march in Charlottesville. Here's a person who repeatedly talks about people from uh, Latin America coming to our country as an invasion. And then we have white supremacist massacres in our country by people who put up uh, you know, statements on the internet that say they're doing it to avoid an invasion of Latinos. The president is at the center of a maelstrom of an increase in white supremacy and hate crimes in this country. I don't care whether he knows what he's doing or not. He's a danger to Jewish people in this country. He's undermining the, the incredibly important alliance between America and, and Israel. You know, I, I almost admire it's hard to get that much crap into this a sentence. You know, it's hard to make that say that many things that are completely untrue. Uh, and sim- he made three points. Basically, uh, Trump said that there were good people on both sides. We know that's not true. We've debunked that a million times. He didn't say there were good people on both sides of the Nazis. He was talking about a statue controversy. Uh, he inspired the shooter because he used the word invasion to describe thousands of people pouring over our borders. Why would he use the word invasion? How could two de- separate people use the word invasion. It must be connected. It's, it's like a conspiracy theory. And now that he's endangering the state of Israel, it's not him who wants to divest in Israel. It's not divest our, you know, take out our investments, take away our aid, uh, boycott their their things. It's not him who wants to do that. And yet he's the one who's in danger. So all of it's untrue, but it's a full vision. It is a full imaginative vision. You know, some of the controversies that come out seem so silly. And one of the reasons the right has shot itself in the foot repeatedly, the conservatives, because we don't pay attention to some of these things that seem like they're uh, trivial and they're not. And Trump does pay attention. When Trump went after the football players uh, for kneeling during the flag, a lot of people on the right, a lot of intellectuals, you know, the, the think tank set, they were going, oh, why is, oh, why, oh, why is he doing this? Well, he was absolutely right. This is where the imagination is formed and the culture is where the imagination is formed, then that becomes your sense of reality. Let's let's just assume for a minute, let's assume that that congressman was saying something, stuff that he believed, then he is just a victim of that. I mean, he's a product of that. Uh, he may he may be doing it on purpose, in which case he's trying to make you a product of that. But he may also be a product of it. He, there may be some way in which he actually believes what he's saying. And that's why you get these there are two movies. There are two different programs coming out uh, attacking Fox News. Roger Ailes and Fox News. There's a movie coming out called Bombshell, uh, which is obviously about the sexual, um, you know, uh, scandal that happened just at the end of Roger Ailes's life. It's got big stars: Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie, uh, Charlize Theron. You know, it's like just a, a really. This is a really big film. Uh, you know, and, and then there's the one on Showtime, uh, the loudest voice. Do we have a little bit of this? This is. Um, What's his name? Uh, what's the actor's name playing Roger Ailes? Um, the guy from Gladiator. Russell Crowe, thanks. Uh, yeah, this is Russell Crowe playing the evil uh, Roger Ailes on Showtime's The Loudest Voice. Television is the most powerful force in the world. We're going to give them a vision of the world. The way it really is. And the way they want it to be. If we can do that, then they will never change the channel. 
people don't want to be informed. They want to feel informed. All right. So, so two two different films attacking Fox News about this one thing on Fox News. Why? Why? I mean, not about Matt Lauer, who bent a girl over a chair and uh, banged her until she fainted and he had to call the medics. Not about Charlie Rose, who's also been accused about this stuff. Not about the guy at CBS who was. I mean, all these uh, scandals, these Me Too scandals on the left. Two shows about one cable news station. Why? Because they want to colonize the imagination. And when you see this stuff, you think like, oh, nobody's watching this stuff at Newsbusters. This is a, uh, you know how much I love Newsbusters, one of my favorite sites. It's typical of conservatives saying, oh, this bombshell is going to lose money. Doesn't matter. It's going to be on at three o'clock in the morning, eight p.m. It's going to be on every cable station. And this is what people are going to think about when they think about Fox News. A generation coming up who sits around doing Netflix and chill is going to watch Netflix. Netflix and chill to bombshell. And that's the, the power this has the, because we never answer it. We never fight back. And when somebody does fight back, the Babylon Bee, perfect example. You know, I, I've said before, the Babylon Bee is the second funniest satire out there. And I'm te- teasing them, you know, because I've been doing this stuff and I, I just love their work. And uh, they, I think they're doing great, great satirical work. Pretty, uh, pretty much from the obviously from a Christian perspective, which means they're more conservative than left, but they come after everybody. They come after Trump worship too. Uh, Kyle Mann is the guy who runs it. And he writes a, a piece in the Wall Street Journal today about this Snopes, uh, a supposed fact check site, which has been fact checking their satire, right? They, uh, they published a debunking of a satirical take. Remember uh, Georgia State the Congresswoman Erica Thomas uh, claimed that a white man in a supermarket told her to go back where you came from. And so they did one that said Georgia lawmaker claims Chick-fil-A employer, employee told her to go back to her country, later clarifies what he actually said was my pleasure. And Snopes knew it was a joke, but they questioned, he says, our brand of satire. The website called us junk news and a ruse. It accused us of intentionally muddying the details of a current event to fool people. So they lawyered up, Babylon be lawyered up, and got them to change some of the the, um, some of the story, but they then said, well, you know, we did, there's a study from Ohio State uh, that shows that people believe this satire. Well, app, the study itself is garbage. What they did was they read people the headlines as if they were true, and then they were surprised that people believed them. They took the humor out of them. But why? Why? You know, uh, Martin Luther said, the best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to texts of scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn, right? Because evil essentially makes no sense, because evil is essentially an absurdity, the devil can't be mocked. The devil doesn't want to be mocked, because once you mock people, you expose their ideas. I mean, that's in that rules for radicals as well. The, one of the greatest things you can do is scorn people. So they, the left has to make sure, has to make sure that people who are doing good satire don't get away with it. That's what Snopes is doing. And all they've done really is expose themselves as a left-wing hit site, which is what they always were. So this is a real battle, the battle for people's imagination is important, just like the battle for their eyeballs. You know, people talk about, oh, we need to get eyeballs in the movie business and in TV. They say, we need to get eyeballs. You know, what they mean is we want to shape people's perception. We want their imaginations locked in to our imaginative vision of the world. So when you feel things are panicking, when you feel, oh, a recession is coming, when you feel, uh, oh my gosh, uh, Donald Trump has created chaos. Oh my gosh, so much is going wrong in our world. Shooters everywhere. Everything's falling apart. Just remember, just remember the people who are controlling those perceptions are not your friends. They are, in fact, the enemies of the people, namely you. And the imagination is an organ of perception. And like every organ of perception, it can be fooled. 
The Daily Wire has turned four years old, and we are thrilled as a thank you to our fans. We are giving away one month of our premium monthly subscription to anyone who uses the code BIRTHDAY. That's right. For all of August, as we celebrate this milestone, we're giving away a free first month for new premium monthly subscribers. Again, just use the code BIRTHDAY and come and join the fun at The Daily Wire, and it really is fun. Mailbag, coming up in just a moment. Mailbag. That was very dim and distant. Is that my ear not working? <laughs> there it is. <laughs> All right. Uh, before I get to uh, some of the letters that came in the mailbag, I want to say about one letter that came to me through my website uh, uh, saying that I got it wrong when I was talking about the Proud Boys uh, and I kind of conflated them with white supremacists. They are openly not a white supremacist group. They say they are uh, a, an all-male, no girls allowed in the Proud Boys Club, uh, and they are invite everybody who loves America, whether you're gay or straight, whether you're black or white, they don't care. So it's not a white supremacist group. I, I do have problems. I like Gavin McGinnis, who is one of the founders a lot, but uh, I have problems with the fact that I feel they go out and start trouble. And just because you say you're not, you're something doesn't mean you are. Antifa says it's anti-fascist, but it's fascist, but they're not white supremacists. They are patriotic. Uh, and I think that they should maybe take it a little easy uh, look, going around looking to start uh, trouble as just as I think Antifa is a violent organization. I don't support that at all, but I should not have called them uh, white supremacists. They're not. Um, from Joe, a supreme overlord of satire. Last week in the mailbag, when discussing what it means to be a man, you stated the good man acts in private as he appears in public. I was talking about integrity. Uh, I believe the principle of integrity is essential to manhood. Uh, so I thank you for your wisdom. My question is, in your opinion, does integrity exist solely in the presence, present, or does each break from integrity contribute to its irreversible deterioration? Um, I know several young men, including myself, who look back on their younger selves and cringe. I will join that group, by the way. I know exactly what you're talking about. I know that I personally have in the past lived a very different and far more sinfully indulgent life in private than I seem to be in public. And at times, I struggle with reconciling that past way of life with my present transparency. Is integrity salvageable once lost? And if so, to what point? Uh, thank you for answering and for your wisdom, O Elis or Oracle. Um, you know, listen, I, I join you. I did things in my youth that I'm thoroughly, thoroughly ashamed of. I think most people have. Uh, and uh, I was particularly out of my mind for a period of time. And so it was even worse. Um, but look, you only have the present to work with. That is basically uh, the message of Jesus. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are off the hook. Now you have to go forward. Uh, guilt has a purpose. Guilt is like a red light flashing in an airplane. If you're flying a plane and a red light goes on, you got to fix what that red light is telling you is wrong. Once you fix it, you don't have to worry about it anymore. You just go forward and keep an eye on it uh, as you go ahead. You only have the present to work with. Listen, there are things you can do that there's no way uh, to make good. Murder is one of them. Rape is one of them. And sometimes you got to go and pay for those things. If you've got a, if you've got your mother buried in your backyard, you got to dig her up. But for the, most of the things that we have done, uh, and you got to dig her up and go to the police and take your punishment. But for most of the things that we've done, there's no way to fix them. And what you have to do is you have to look yourself in the mirror say, this is what I did, and then go on. Part of having integrity is doing that. Part of having integrity is doing that. And so you have to walk this, this very uh, careful line between not paying attention to your guilt. The two ways that people damn themselves is one is they rewrite the world. So they say, I didn't do anything wrong. No, it wasn't wrong. And I'll prove it. I'll do something even worse. You know, that, that abortion wasn't wrong. I'll have two more. I'll show you. You know, and then I'll go out and shout my abortion. You know, once you do that, you're damned. You're going down a path where you have to keep making things worse and worse to, for, to 
uh, keep from facing the shame. And the other thing they do is having faced the shame and having gotten rid of the, the behavior and gone forward, they wallow in the shame. And that's why they call Satan the accuser. He keeps accusing you in your mind. It takes a lot of self-discipline not to do that. Yes, you can have te- integrity uh, if you've done bad things in the past. Part of that integrity uh, is admitting that you've done them and moving on in a way that, that shows that you have left that behind. One of the things that's so bad about our culture is they try to get apologies out of people as a political maneuver. And then when the person apologizes, they don't forgive him. That's not the way it works. When you are done, when you've stood before God and said, I was wrong, God says, got it. Now go forward and sin no more. That's the way it is. You only have the present to work with. And so if you waste the present, if you waste the present wallowing in your past, uh, you're losing the chance to become a man of integrity. Face it and move on. Uh, From Alec, uh, dear Clavin, the witty and wise, worthy of wonder, what is your take on the effect of video games, especially violent ones on the human brain? I'm a fan of Matt Walsh, and I know his opinion on it. Uh, he does not enjoy video games, and his point is that we must be objective about them, even if we do like them. This is a logical position. Uh, I enjoy lots of different kinds of games, including violent ones. As someone who enjoys video games yourself, what's your opinion on that? My opinion is that the problem with video games is not video games. It is the situation of the people playing them. First, so many of these studies You you can even read them. They'll say, like, after 10 hours of playing violent video games, people become violent. Well, after 10 hours of eating carrots, you become violent. I mean, you can't do anything for 10 hours. You you want to control how much time you spend playing video games. You don't want to immerse yourself in them for hours and hours on end. Uh, it, It doesn't even feel good to do that. So you should limit the amount of time you do anything. Any, you know, except read maybe, but even reading, you want to get out and get exercise and do things like that. You know, so like you don't want to play the video games forever. But so much of the bad things that happen with video games happen because parents aren't involved uh, and especially fathers. If uh, if you play video games with your dad, it's not going to be the same experience if your parents are paying attention to what video games you play. And of course, the younger you are, the more uh, of a child you are, the less you want to feed things in uh, into that brain that are going to shape them. If you have a small tree and you put a little poison in the tree, the tree is going to grow up twisted and sick. If you have a large tree and you put a little poison in it, it's not going to have any uh effect whatsoever. So um, that's not to say that uh, video games are poison, obviously. I'm just saying that the effect of something on on somebody small is going to be so much greater than it is when you're an adult and you can say, oh, this is a game I'm playing. I'm pretending to be a soldier. I'm pretending uh, to be in a violent situation because it's exciting and cool, but I know that's not happening. That's something that you have as an adult that a child doesn't have. So really the problem with video games is everything surrounding them, the family uh, dynamic, the fatherlessness, the amount of time unrestricted with video games and how old people are. It is not the games themselves. That's, it's absurd. It's absurd. I mean, you know, if you, play, if you play games with your dad and some of them are violent, you're not going to become a violent person. That's not going to happen. So if you're a grown adult and you're not a violent person, I know I'm not a violent person. I know video games are not going to make me more, more violent. So I, I just think it's ridiculous to blame the game and not the greater situation. Uh, Michael, dear Slayer of Ease, I am in a committed relationship with my girlfriend, I have full intention to marry her. We agree on politics. She has two brothers that are militant leftists. Uh, They have called me white supremacist for supporting Trump, as well as a trans hater for believing in biology. When I'm around them, I bite my tongue out of respect for my relationship with my girlfriend. Uh, They've on several occasions started arguments on Facebook. Uh, I do on occasion post conservative posts, mostly comical ones, and they've used these as a mean to insult me and my beliefs. I want to marry my girlfriend, whom I deeply love. But there's this shadow lingering over us of her brothers. How should I handle the situation? Do I continue to simply ignore their taunts or defend my beliefs? Uh, thank you for your wisdom. No, you, you don't ignore them. They're bullying you. See, that's, that's, you can't do that. 
you can't let them bully you. And that they, they're insulting you. They're calling you names. Uh, and, and you don't have to start a fight. That's not the, the point. Uh, but you do have to stand up for yourself and let them know that this is not going to play. What I would do in this situation is first I talk to my girlfriend. I would say, look, uh, you know, I love you. This has nothing to do with you, but your brothers are being bullying and they're being obnoxious and I'm going to have a conversation with them about them and I'm going to block them on social media. Don't have them on your Facebook page. I, you know, I don't really do a lot of Facebook, but I'm sure there's some way to not have them come on and not be on your feed. Uh, you don't, why, why have them on? Uh, sit down with them, however you communicate with them and say, look, guys, I love you and I'm going to marry your sister. Here's the thing. I'm going to marry your sister. I'm going to be part of your family. You're really out of line. And, and say it in the most friendly way. You know, you're, you're just out of line. You can't be calling me a white supremacist. That's not what I am. We have differing political opinions. Family and politics sometimes don't miss. They don't mix. So maybe we shouldn't talk about this stuff. I mean, if you want to have a, a civilized conversation about it anytime, anytime, I'm not changing my opinions for you. I'm not going to be, but I'm not going to have you calling me white supremacist. If you're going to do that, just don't talk to me. Just don't, if you can't be civilized, don't talk to me. Say it as politely as you can. Tell your girlfriend you're going to do it. And then just be who you are. I mean, you have a right to your opinions. Your opinions happen to be true uh, and theirs are wrong. But you don't have to be pushed around like that. That's, it's ridiculous. They're being incredibly rude. One of the things that leftists have is they have this idea that you're evil so they can say anything you want. But if you turn around to them and say, hey, you know, you're a communist and your uh, ideas are responsible for millions of people dying. They're like, how can you be so uncivil? You know, un being uncivil never became a thing until Rush Limbaugh came around. And then suddenly it was, where, it, was, uh, it was Bill Clinton. Where's the civility? Well, when you were calling us racist, where was the civility? So again, in the politest possible way, just say, guys, this is not the way this is going to go. If you're going to call me that, if you're going to call me names, we're not talking about it. If we don't talk about it, we can be wonderful friends because I'm going to be part of the family. And you should let your, uh, your girlfriend know you're going to do it. Uh, Ashley, oh, King, from Ashley, oh, King Clavin, as a movie buff who grew up with a grandfather film critic, I've been dismayed at the decline of this profession. Critics no longer discuss the quality of film, instead focusing on how it fits in with the modern social and political landscape. Do you see the audience shift away from critics as a long-term win for the film industry or a loss? As an artist, have you ever held this profession in high esteem yourself? Thanks. Uh, really interesting question. Um, most critics, there's a difference between reviewers and critics, okay? A reviewer tells you whether the film is good and should you go, and reviews are now uh, obsolete, really, because the, the system on things like Rotten Tomatoes is better. Aggregate reviews are better. You can go on and look at what people say, and if they say, oh, well, I hate this movie because it's against abortion, and you think you're pro-life, then you know to not to pay attention to that. It's very open. It's right out there in the open. Uh, I can usually tell by reading Rotten Tomatoes whether I'm going to like a film or not because of the aggregate of reviews, uh, and they tell me what they don't like, and I can sort of say, yeah, that's not going to bother me. That is going to bother me, uh, and, and that's the way I find good movies. It really works. So individual reviewers have lost a lot of power. Critis criticism has gone down the drain. Criticism has gone down the drain because of what they call theory, and there's all kinds of theory. There's queer theory, and there's black theory, and there's female theory, you know, feminist theory. And the problem about all this stuff is it imposes a, a, a template on top of the work of art and prevents the artist from speaking. Criticism that tries to help you understand what the artist was trying to say and what he might have said without meaning to is incredibly useful and can even become almost an art form. So when that happens, it's still a wonderful thing. It happens very rarely because of left-wing theory and because the right 
does not cultivate criticism. What the right does is it sends some political reporter out to, you know, oh, I enjoy the movies, so I'm going to go to see the movies. But the guy doesn't really know about the history of movies, doesn't, hasn't really studied movies, and so he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, he only knows, he basically is a reviewer, a right-wing reviewer. We have very few cultural critics on the right, and the left's cultural critics have gone insane because of theory, which ruins it. So I think criticism can be a very powerful force for good. I mean, look, without, without, Criticism of some of the great works, uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, or, or even Shakespeare, uh, you know, I just wouldn't have the kind of depth of information I have about those works because I wouldn't know where they come from in time. I, I wouldn't know enough about uh, Elizabethan England, maybe, to understand Shakespeare at the level I want to understand him. You can take Shakespeare as he comes, right, because he's funny and he's interesting, he tells good stories and his language is beautiful, but the more you know, the deeper you get. So criticism can be a wonderful thing, almost reaching the level of an art form. Unfortunately, uh, with the advent of um, uh, of theory and deconstructionism and all this uh, French theory that came around, it has been ruined. There's a really good article in City Journal, uh, the, the current City Journal, an interview with Camille Paglia, who talks about this very intelligently. Um, so anyway, there's still, I'm sure, good criticism around, but you got to look for it. Uh, a lot. One good place to find it is you, if you get the Claremont Review of Books, they have a lot of ads for books of criticism, and some of those are excellent criticism. Um, from Daniel, Dear Andrew Claven. I want to thank you and the rest of the Daily Wire crew for educating me on politics and helping expand my level of thought. I'm now facing a tough battle in my home life that's becoming hard to ignore. My older brother has been blowing off schoolwork, posting concerning things on social media, cutting off friend groups, and spending the majority of his days in bed. I believe a lot of this has to do with his self-worth issues. There's tons of evidence of him being a closeted bisexual or homosexual. Whenever the topic of gays is brought up, he immediately talks about how they should all die a horrible death and burn in hell, reflecting what he thinks of himself. Uh, this is greatly affecting my parents, making my mother anxious and my father very prone to anger. I can't help but feel like there's something I need to do to help both my father and brother. Is there anything you recommend me doing to help my older brother out of this depressive state and calm my father? Well, first of all, good for you for noticing that this is a serious problem. This is a serious thing, and there's only so much you can do. There's, there's certain information lacking from this letter. So my answer can't be as complete as I'd like it to be. I don't know how old you are. I don't know how old your older brother is. I'm guessing your older brother is moving into being a, a teenager or maybe in a, a late teen. And that, that would mean that you are somewhere below that. So it's, it's a little hard for me to tell what kind of leverage you have. First, there's nothing you can do to change your parents. Right. Your parents are your parents. They're grown up. They're shaped. That's not that people never change, but they don't change because you're, you don't have the power to change them. You do have the power to befriend your brother and to let your brother know that you love him and you're his brother and his pal no matter what. You know, you don't have to say even if you're gay, but you can say, look, no matter who you are, no matter what's bothering you, uh, if you're depressed, if you are uh, struggling with something, if you're gay, it doesn't matter to me. I'm your brother and your pal, and you can tell me what's on your mind, and I can help you. You know, like, don't don't feel that you're going to lose me uh, because, uh, because you're gay or anything else, right? So maybe give him a chance to talk about this. Maybe he's struggling with this, and he needs to know that someone's going to love him no matter what. Uh, that may not be the answer. Now, if... If your friendship doesn't help and if he doesn't calm down and if it looks like uh, there's a real problem that he might hurt himself or he might hurt somebody else or he might, uh, you know, use uh, drugs that are going to really hurt him, that that might come. There might come a time when you have to go to your parents and say, are you, you know, instead of yelling at this guy, you got to get him help. 
you know, he needs help and I can't do it and you can't do it and somebody's got to do it because otherwise he's going to hurt himself. That might be a message that you can send to your parents. But first, try befriending him. Try letting him know that he's got a friend in you no matter what's going on in his mind. Don't leap to conclusions. Don't decide you know the truth before you find out what he thinks the truth is. I mean, I don't know whether what he's saying is denial. I don't know whether... uh, you know, he's got some other mental issue that's really burning him up, but it would be good for him to have a friend and know that he that you're going to love him no matter what. So that is something you can talk to him about. And if it looks like there's real danger, then you might go uh, to your parents or someone else you think might be more useful uh, and see if you can get him help. So that's that's how I would start. I got to stop, but I will be back tomorrow. I'm doing a Friday show tomorrow. So please be here. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, give us a five-star review and also tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Wall Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Austin Stevens and directed by Mike Joyner. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. And our supervising producers are Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Edited by Adam Saevitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. And our production assistant is Nick Sheehan. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. If you want to delve the depths of leftist madness, head on over to The Michael Knowles Show, where we examine what's really going on beneath the surface of our politics and bask in the simple joys of being right. 